0: Before today's episode, I've got an extra special announcement. We build a school. We build a school. We build a school. It's hard to believe. We built an entire school. We want to announce that to everyone who's listening here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much with the people who bought the Paradise Pack, especially you guys, the people out there who picked up your copy of the Paradise Pack. Remember, 10% of your entire order went to Pencils of Promise. To help build a school in Guatemala, and Jason, we did that.
1: Yeah, I'm just really blown away by the support of you. If you picked up the Paradise Pack, again, thank you so much. And of course, all of the contributors, the people that were involved in the pack itself, and we just want to list them off really quick. And if you're just hearing what is this Paradise Pack... If you're hearing it for the first time, Uh, it's just a once a year project that we do. And if you've been listening to the podcast, you've probably heard about it. We had a bunch of contributors uh, together and we did basically a week long sale and offered some of these amazing products to help people live, work and travel anywhere. And just wanted to give some shout outs to everybody. Uh, Let's go through here. Nomadic Matt. We got Benny
0: Lewis, Kaz and Craig, Natalie Sisson, Sean Ogle, of course, you, Jason Moore, a contributor. <laughs> Brian Moran, Nat and Jody, Christine Gilbert. Captain and Clark, Tom Muir, Jesse Krieger. Tim Leffel, Jasper Rivers, Sean Keener. Sherry Ott, and Michelle Frost, as well as Adam Sepper from Boots and All, and Emily Utter, who were uh, generous enough to put in some of their projects as bonuses. So, thank you to all the contributors. Obviously, without you guys picking up the Paradise Pack and 10 percent of your order going to Pencils of Promise, we wouldn't have built a school, there would have been no way for us to even put together the Paradise Pack without the amazing contributors and also the affiliates people who decided to promote the Paradise Pack, but weren't contributors. So thank you, everyone. Because of all your generosity. there will be a school being built with Pencils of Promise because of this project in Guatemala.
1: Yeah, we should thank Dave Lee as well because he was uh, a part of that from uh, Travel Blog Success. And yes, we are completely blown away. We've actually done this and we will have more details on this school. We're still uh, working with Pencils of Promise uh, to square away the donation and get some more details. Obviously, these things don't happen overnight, but uh, we're really excited to share more about this school, where it's going to be and when it's going to be built, and just all the details involved. And I'm just so grateful and really, really thankful for everybody involved with this. And thank you, Travis, because uh, we worked on this project together. And by no stretch of my imagination could I have ever done this by myself in any way, shape, or form. It was true team effort. And um, I just want to say thank you to you as well, my friend, for all the help and, and all the hard work you put in.
0: Yeah. And thank you again to everyone out there who helped us achieve this goal, to Pencils of Promise as well, who are an awesome organization. You're going to hear more about Pencils of Promise in this interview with Adam Braun, who's the founder of Pencils of Promise. So you want to dig into that. So thank you guys. And if you do want to get some details and you want to be kept up to date on what is happening with the school, make sure you go to theparadisepack.com. You could sign up for email notifications there, and then you'll be getting information about when the school will be built and all the details that we'll have that'll be forthcoming. So thank you again, everyone. And Jay, we built a school. We built a school. Thank you, everybody. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 174. The world's first happy meal was invented in the 1970s in... Guatemala now they serve over 100 million per week 1, 2, 3 I'll show you Paris in the morning I'll show Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is a man who is a New York Times bestselling author who's spoken at the White House and the United Nations, who's been featured in Forbes' 30 Under 30 list, and who also started a nonprofit with only $25, Adam Braun, founder of Pencils of Promise. Adam, thanks so much for joining me today, and welcome.
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And a quick heads up to listeners who know that most of our interviews can roll on for an hour, hour and a half even. We're keeping this at a quick, concise 30 minutes because Adam will also be chatting with Jason over at the Zero to Travel podcast as well, where he'll be diving into more depth about the inner workings of Pencils of Promise. So don't worry, you will get a full hour of Adam. Just head over there to our good friends over at Zero to Travel. Check that out as well. And Adam, we're going to talk about the transformative role that travel played in your life in just a moment. But I want to start with how you first got interested in travel? Because if people don't know, you're an experienced traveler, you're a big-time traveler. Was it something you did growing up or was there kind of an aha moment where you thought, you know, this is going to be a major part of my life from now on?
2: Uh, I think I kind of had an aha moment. I would say it was definitely, I was uh, 21. I I went on Semester at Sea, which for those that aren't familiar is a a study abroad program, but it's not like the usual ones where you go to one location and you kind of stay still for about four months. And you have a home base. Your home base is actually a a huge thousand-person cruise ship with 750 uh, students from about 200 to 250 types of colleges. And uh, you get the opportunity not only uh, literally go around the world, but uh, you get to stop in ten different countries, and you have four to six days to completely independently travel and backpack around. And so they literally, you know, get you off the boat. uh, Let's say Sunday morning, and it's like, hey, Friday at 6 p.m., we're taking off for the next location, and uh, you're either there or you get left behind. And so that was the first time that I had really, truly independently traveled, and I just fell in love with it. I'd never felt more alive and kind of more in my own skin. And uh, so that was my aha moment and just been a a pretty relentless traveler ever since.
0: So how many people came close to almost getting left behind then? And were you ever one of them?
2: Uh, uh, I I was definitely close. I was not left behind. But I think we had to leave behind two or three kids at various points in time. I think every voyage there's, you know, a small handful, but after you hear about it once, it, it sounds so terrible that you make sure that you're there pretty early.
0: Before you did that semester at sea then, was travel in your in your wheelhouse? Was in your mindset? Because for me that I always say on the podcast, that was kind of my my only real regret was not studying abroad in university and it seems weird to say now but I just I didn't really care about it so much I was in university I was doing that um and I think a lot of people can relate to that and I've tried to make up for it since but was that something that you got pushed towards was it your decision or was it something that just kind of came about
2: I would say it was a little bit of kind of all the above you know I was a basketball player in college I went to Brown University and uh my first two years of it, um, you know, what was it? it What's the division one men's basketball team, which is kind of like a full time job. And uh, I loved it. But the guy I backed up was a superstar. He was an honorable mention All-American. He was the Ivy League player of the year. And so I wasn't really playing very much. And then eventually I had ankle surgery. And I just realized, you know, I could wait till my senior year and then and uh, get some decent playing time or I could find an opportunity to get out of my comfort zone. And one of the things that I just fundamentally believe is that uh, true self-discovery begins where your comfort zone ends. And I wanted to get outside of my comfort zone. And so I started to think about if I was going to travel, where would I go? And uh, two separate friends of mine from childhood had gone on semester at sea in the previous year and just came back totally different people. And, uh, you know, sometimes someone goes on a trip and they come back and they're kind of a shell of themselves or, you know, it it doesn't kind of bring out the best of them. And this just brought out, you know, the best of them in spades. And so it was really clear that this was something that was going to be an amazing opportunity and, and truly kind of, you know, life changing but in the most positive ways. And so from that point forward, I just kind of became obsessed with finding a way to uh, participate in the voyage.
0: Yeah, it's really neat when you have friends or people that you know who kind of spur you on to do that. Same thing happened with me with living in Japan. I I didn't really consider it until a friend of mine said I did this program teaching English there and he spoke highly of it and I could tell that he loved it and that pushed me to do it. And I think a lot of times we can take a lot of things from what our friends or, or people that we know have done and, and really look at that through a lens and say hey, this, this could work for me.
2: Yep, yeah, completely.
0: When you came back, how had it changed you? Because you mentioned that they had changed for the better in spades. What were you feeling after the journey? Was it kind of... Was there sadness? Was it melancholy? Like, oh, this was an amazing experience. But now what? I'm not going to get to keep going on semesters at sea over and over and over again.
2: Right. I mean, I I was a very different person when I came back, probably more transformed than anyone else that I know uh, that went on the trip. I mean, it it was really, really, really impactful for me for a variety of reasons. But, you know, the biggest thing is everyone had asked me, you know, where was the biggest cultural shock? You went to 10 different countries. You must add a a significant sense of culture shock um, arriving in a certain place. Where did it feel like you're most out of place? And I I gave people the honest answer, and that was it wasn't India or Kenya or South Africa. It was actually coming home uh, to the United States where I felt so out of place. I mean, just the eyes that I now had after traveling were, were kind of viewing the world through a very different lens. And I think to some degree, you know, I, I, I was probably a, a little bit kind of harsh in my, my viewpoint of how um, the Western world was operating, you know, because if you grow up in pretty much any Western environment, you, you come to almost expect certain things that you take for granted, you know, that every child gets access to an education that most people have electricity or running water or, you know, access nowadays probably to some type of Internet. But that's just not how most of the world lives. Literally most. I'm not saying like a couple hundred people, a couple thousand, or even millions, billions of people live without those things that we take for granted. And I felt like I'd almost been lied to <laughs> for throughout my whole life to not be aware of how real that is for so many others. And so, you know, to some degree, I was probably a little bit harsh, like, oh, how could you not be aware of all these things that are happening on the other side of the world, which inevitably happens, especially if I think in your early 20s, and, and there's a lot of kind of coming of age uh, in in that kind of period. But You know, I was also just really acutely aware of how kind of vibrant life could be. You know, there's something unbelievable that happens when uh, you wake up in the morning and you're in an unfamiliar environment and you don't know what the next meal that you're going to have is going to taste like. And the sounds and the scents and, you know, just the conversations, the languages that you're going to hear on that given day might be completely different. In fact, they almost assuredly will be completely different from anything else that you've ever experienced. And it's, it's an intoxicating feeling. And you just want it more and more and more. And so when I came home, the analogy that I've used before is it was like, you know, going to your childhood bedroom and knowing that to some degree this is your place, it it fits, and yet you've totally outgrown it. And so that's certainly how I felt.
0: Yeah, I think as travelers, you do that. It's hard to come home because everything, your senses are so alive when you're traveling. Because as you mentioned, you don't know anything most of the time. I mean, y- you don't know what's going to taste like, what it's going to look like. You have no idea what's happening. You just know something's happening. And then you come home and all of a sudden you can pull out of your driveway, drive for 10 minutes, not even pay attention. And somehow you made it to wherever you're going. You're on autopilot. Yep,
2: yep. And
0: I'm really glad you mentioned it because there's a lot of people who don't want to admit that, or it's hard to admit because they they think they're doing something wrong. and and. It's not really doing something wrong, but I want to, how were you able to then balance it? Because then you did take the good parts of what you learned about travel, this, this idea that life can be so vibrant and vivacious, and we really can build something we want. You, you combine that with the idea that not everyone has a lot of stuff, and you wanted to help them have more, but without then really hating on the people when you come home, like, how can you not pay attention? How were you able to balance that? How long did it take to kind of wrap all that together into what you feel now?
2: You know, the truth is it took years because at first it was just so overwhelmingly strong. And, and the other thing that I, I think is, you know, especially if you you're, you're traveling for the very first time, one of the things that is so amazing and just phenomenal in the experience is that your learning curve is so steep. Right. I mean, just exposure to languages and people. And cultures and new sights and sounds, you just feel like you're growing so much by leaps and bounds every day. And then when you get to your familiar surroundings, you don't feel that sense of huge personal growth. And so I crave that. And and so my, my family, you know, I said, I, I want to go back out and backpack this part of the world. And they, you know, I said, look, we'll support you, just not financially. So uh, you want to go, go for it, but we're not giving you a dime. So it forced me to, you know, constantly work jobs and build small businesses. And I could take you know, whatever my earnings were and get a one-way flight to, you know, Central America, I go to fly down to Guatemala and I spent four months backpacking all the way down to Uruguay and and back up or, you know, pretty much the same thing throughout Southeast Asia. I get a flight to Singapore or Thailand and weeks that would sometimes, you know, be month-long trips or multi-month trips. And so I spent a lot of time traveling and backpacking through 40, 50 countries, probably maybe more in uh, that period, the next two, three years until, I just had to kind of join the traditional workforce, and even then, all my vacations were to like these kind of crazy off-beaten path backpacker spots. And eventually, I said, you know, something—I want to find a career that enables me to return to these places time and time again, and uh, ideally work in a way that gives back to these locations that have, you know, really helped me become the person that I am. And that's when I started uh, the organization Pencils of Promise. to Uh, Build schools and increase education opportunities throughout the developing world.
0: Yeah, I think what's really neat about that story is you didn't come back and then, and then you were able to travel, but you didn't like completely shirk a regular responsibility and regular role. You said, All right, I have to do this. And then when you, you know, you worked at that and you did as much as you could, as much traveling as you could while you were doing that. And then when you were ready to take the step, you did. I think so many people come back and they're like, well, I can't do that. Like, you know, and sometimes you just have to suck it up and say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try my best in whatever I'm doing. And then I'm going to use the time I have for those experiences and work towards something versus kind of just jumping off the deep end right away and saying, oh, that's not me, you know?
2: Yeah. I mean, people that that know my story or they've seen like a TED talk or something like that that I've given or, or they've read my book, The Promise of a Pencil, a lot of times they'll, they'll kind of ask me, you know, oh, you were in this position where you just, you know, came back and you had this feeling and, and you just left it all behind. Was that scary? And, and I'll then explain to them, no, because I didn't leave it all behind right away. I mean, it was four years from the point at which I went into the developing world for the first time, got this kind of idea in my head of one day something I would want to work on, And I spent, you know, more than half of that time in the full-time workforce working, you know, what was a great job, but working for a management consulting firm, you know, getting kind of my business training, and then constantly kind of staying true to what felt like the the kind of most honest, deepest, truest form of myself as a backpacker. And then eventually finding the hybrid between the two. But it's not like I came back and just overnight said, you know something, I'm going to spend the rest of my life out there. It was a gradual process and one that uh, I'm, I'm kind of glad. Felt certainly not not rushed and not patient, but um, there was a sense of urgency, and I knew that I had to take certain steps to get there. But it, it was a couple of years.
0: Yeah, those details tend to get glossed over in an 18-minute talk, or you know, there, there's just so much time or so little time to tell the story. And I, I think that's important that you told it there. It was a progression, and I'm going to get back to the of why it stuck with you, you know, through all that and why you're working through it. But I want you to tell quickly the story, if people don't know, of Pencils of Promise, of where it actually came from, because it's a really neat, uh, we talked about naha moment, this was it. I mean, you can point to a singular time and say, this is what made me start this organization that's now all over the world and getting donations from people all over the world. So can you tell a little bit about that story?
2: Sure. So uh, when I was on Semester at Sea, the country I was most excited to get to was India, and I had a habit of uh, asking one, one child in each country that we went through the same question. And that question was, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? It was just kind of a personal project that I was doing. And I'd have, uh, as I said, one kid write down his or her specific answer. And in India, uh, I'm, I met a street beggar. A uh, kid was probably nine or ten. And um, you see a lot of children begging on the streets. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a helpless feeling. And so uh, I asked this boy, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? And his answer really surprised me. Because uh, he asked for a pencil, and so I gave him my pencil, and he just lit up, and he was so happy and I realized this boy had never been to school before uh at all, and he saw there were kids uh you know going back and forth with pens and paper, and if he got money as a street beggar, some you know gang lord or even potentially a family member would take it away. But a pencil was this tool to unlock his sense of creativity and curiosity and imagination and so I started passing out pens and pencils as I would travel, and you know i 'm sure many of your listeners. Have had that specific experience where you go through some country, and the first thing that all the kids run up and ask for is like a pen or a pencil. And if you give it to them, it's so exciting. And you know, I, I'm naturally pretty introverted, and so for those of your listeners that are travelers, but you know, have that feeling of like, well, how do I talk to a stranger, or if I go into a village, how do I engage someone new? Uh, the answer is you bring pens and pencils, and kids come up and they're so excited about it. And so, I always passed out pens and pencils as I would travel as a means to you know, build relationships and engage people in conversation. And so eventually when I got this idea to build uh, the first school, I named the organization Pencils of Promise kind of to honor that, that request and, and also because of the symbolism and how powerful it really is.
0: Yeah, and if you are an introvert going through these areas, and I think everyone is to some degree when you're traveling, you know, even if you are an extroverted person, you feel awkward because you don't know what's happening. It's always great to talk to the kids because if you're trying to speak the language, they don't care that you mess up. They'll laugh and play with you and have fun. And it just seems more natural and, and easier because it's less intimidating. So I think that it's an amazing story. It's one that gives me chills every time I've heard you tell it. And I think it's just, it's insane to us to think that. If this kid could have anything, it was a pencil. I mean something that I can look on my desk right now and have fifty of. It goes back to what you said of we, we take things for granted all the time and and that really is eye opening and you had that moment. And I think a lot of people have those moments when they travel and then or, or even in their life and they're like, I want to do something like this touched me. I want to do something. And then, you know, either slowly or, or even quickly, it just fades and they don't do anything about it. They have these good intentions, but they go home or they travel somewhere else. And then, you know, eventually it's gone. Why did it stay with you? How were you able to keep that feeling inside and say, I'm going to go back to normal life? I'm going to work, but I'm going to be working towards this.
2: You know, I think sometimes, you know, one of the, the mantras, like I just kind of have these short, pithy phrases that have always really resonated with me. And one of them that that has really stood with me for a while is to make the little decisions with your head and the big ones with your heart. You know, I think we each kind of have this voice that that kind of speaks from somewhere deep inside that, that is just an essential truth. And my interaction with that boy, the interactions that I had with people as I would travel, you know, they, they were just packed with such authenticity and sincerity there's no kind of angle a lot of the times when you're traveling and you just strike up a conversation with a man or a woman, you know, working a little bodega or a shop on the side of the road or in a cafe um, or, you know, at your, you know, guest house or hostel or hotel, wherever you're staying. And I just love those interactions. And I felt like I just got so much value. Like, like, you know, even if they didn't realize it, these people were bringing so much greatness into my life. And I never felt uh, more kind of grateful to somebody outside of my family than I did to these individuals who, without even realizing it, really were positively impacting me. And so, you know, as I kind of ventured into a career and I looked at all these opportunities, I just found that, you know, true happiness is found in in celebrating others. And even though I didn't have a lot of money from my backpacking days, I I knew how little uh, money could go a really long way if you went into the poorest parts of the world. And so even though I was young, I was 24, uh, when I started the organization, turning 25, uh, for Pencils of Promise, it's $25,000 to build a full school, which is a pretty low price point. And if there's anyone listening that's interested in getting involved in us, I always like to give out my email. It's just adam at, and then the letter, ipromise.org, just adam at ipromise.org. And so, you know, I had this kind of singular ambition and a lot of people seem to believe in it. And uh, now here we are with uh, more than 300 schools around the world and over 30,000 students in our programs.
0: Yeah, it's the people that you meet it it is interesting because they probably have no idea. Like that that boy, it, unless you've been able to find him again. Have you have you been able to?
2: No, I wish. Oh jeez, I really wish, but um wasn't capable.
0: Right. They don't have any idea and and you touch their lives and sometimes we do that as travelers too. We touch someone's life without knowing and I think that is the beauty then inherent in travel is that it's these little things that can really really help make a huge difference. And, you know, the tagline of your book, it reads how an ordinary person can create extraordinary changes. And we're we're talking about how travel played a part in you deciding to start Pencils of Promise. But do you think it played a part in making you believe that you could actually do it?
2: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you see people pull off pretty impossible feats all the time as a traveler. Five people on a motorbike
0: and things like that, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I think that uh, the travel without realizing it, it it, it equips you with a really unique set of knowledge, right? I mean, if I hadn't traveled, I wouldn't know the generalities of how much it would probably cost to build a school or, you know, how to talk to somebody in a cafe that could eventually lead me to an introduction and an education ministry. I also wouldn't know... About how much of um, you know nonprofit dollars and philanthropy fails in the field. You know, most people just assume you make a donation to an organization and you've made the world better. But uh, when you're in these villages and you, especially if you live amongst the community for a couple of days, you see that like so much aid just doesn't work out at all, and oftentimes even creates negative unintended consequences on those communities that they never asked for. And so the travel really uh, kind of in some ways, was this informal education that enabled me to eventually start the organization and and nowadays, you know, for for a lot of its success to carry on.
0: Yeah. And like we mentioned, guys, Jason's going to be digging deeper into Pencils of Promise. We've kind of given an overview here of building schools uh, in developing countries. Guatemala and Ghana are two of them. $25,000 builds a school. And Adam, all of the money that gets donated actually goes to, to building the schools then.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So a hundred percent of online donations go directly into our programs. We fundraise for, um, things like, you know, our New York staff who who does a lot of the fundraising, but, um, salaries and overhead and, you know, administrative costs that that's all fundraised for separately from private donors and, and events and corporate sponsors. So if anybody goes onto pencilsofpromise.org and makes a donation or even just goes to the website, you'll see a hundred percent of those funds go directly into our programs. And, um, And anyone that funds a full school also gets the opportunity to dedicate it, uh, which is really cool. I mean, the first school was so I could dedicate a school to my grandmother. Um, and, uh, And we've seen a lot of other people have amazing experiences and potentially even go on trips on the ground as well.
0: Yeah, and you guys know if you're listening or at least I think you know, we donate 10% of all the profits that we make to Pencil of Promise with a goal to build schools in Guatemala and it's just a, it's an absolutely phenomenal organization. Jason will dig into the inner workings of Pencils of Promise a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more of the on the travel side as well. Circle back to that because that is the genesis of of why we're both doing what we're doing and and trying to accomplish in life and that's really help people Uh, you in developing worlds with education, me just helping people really figure out what it is they want to do, create a life of freedom, you know, give themselves those opportunities. What are some of your best memories from traveling? I mean, we talked about the one obviously that started Pencils of Promise. Are there other places that you've been or experiences you've had that you just think, you know, this is why I'm doing this, like this would not happen anywhere else?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of experiences like that. So, You know, one of them was when I was in uh, uh, Guatemala. I was 23. I was on a four-month backpacking trip. And towards the end of the first month, I had been uh, living and staying on Lake Atitlan in Guatemala, just a beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, this man came up to me by the waterfront and essentially invited me to to move in with him (laughs) in his village, which was way up in the mountains. No, you know, Westerner, no gringo had ever been there before. And uh, he had a big tape cassette recorder and his Bible, and he was trying to teach himself English so that he could teach uh, his children and the other children in his village how to speak the language. And he had learned how to read it, but his pronunciation was really bad. And so he asked me to move in for as long as I was willing to stay uh, into his home with him and his wife, which I eventually learned was just one room, and uh, read uh, from his Bible um, for as much as I could all day. And then he had a big set of headphones, and it was recorded onto a cassette, and then he wanted to listen to my voice, reading the Bible so that he could learn how to pronounce the words correctly. And it was just so powerful, like the symbolism of him not asking for a handout but the tools to self-educate so he could improve not just his life but the life of you know future generations of kids in his village. and it, it reminded me of my grandfather, you know my grandfather is an immigrant, and you know, sacrificed his well-being for the well-being of his grandkids. And so I ended up going up there, and I, I lived with him for three days in his village, and read and read and read, and, read and his name is Joel Puak, and he, he totally changed my life. And uh, years later, when I started Pencils of Promise, uh, not only did I adopt a lot of those philosophies, but eventually, after uh, starting in Laos and then going to Nicaragua, the next place was to go to Guatemala, and I went back, and I found him in the village, and we've now built over 150 schools in Guatemala, and it's all uh, really inspired by this this one, man
0: what made you decide to, to take that leap and say, I am going to go do that? Because, you know, we know in the moment, like it feels normal, but if people yeah. are listening, they'll be like, Adam, what <laughs> you don't yeah, know this guy.
2: Crazy. So Right. And I was, I was alone at that point. And so, you know, there was no connectivity, there was no phones no, like nothing. And so I remember thinking this guy can just chop up my body and no one will ever see me again. But you know, there was something inside of me where at the time you know, I was kind of looking for a little bit of guidance, I would say, and I was learning about the concept of just how, you know, there are certain people that enter your life at certain points in time and you can view them as somewhat of a, you know, kind of spiritual guide to to uh, help you find whatever your right path is supposed to be. And there are other people who, you know, might enter your life and could have that capacity and you just kind of let them go by the wayside. And the second thing is, um, especially at that stage, and I would still say at this stage as, as well, but when you're in that traveling mentality... I always encourage people to just adopt the mentality to say, when will I get back? You know, whatever today's date is, June X, you know, 2015. So, you know, the question is at this you know stage in my life, when will I get back? You know, let's say it's a couple months from, you're only going to have one shot at September 10th, 2015. And so how do you make it as extraordinary as you can? And how do you ensure that it will live as a memory in your lifetime? And so when this guy offered this, you know, this opportunity for me, it was like I could have a normal day, or I could make whatever that date was. You know, April twenty fifth, two thousand seven, a day that will be etched in my mind for the rest of my life. And uh, when you take that approach, it leads you down um, pretty cool paths.
0: Yeah. Whenever I tell some stories, your guests come on and tell a lot of stories of these authentic travel experiences that you, that you couldn't find if you wanted to. There's no guidebook. There's no way that you can recreate it. I just tell people you got to go with your gut. You know, if your gut's telling you like, listen, this isn't a dangerous situation, but it feels a little weird, then dive in. Because as you mentioned, you're never going to get that opportunity again, and, and you're going to miss out a lot. So as long as it feels safe enough to you, go with your gut, and, and that's usually 99% of the time, it's going to work out way better than you ever even imagined.
2: Yeah, completely.
0: At, at Extra Pack of Peanuts, uh, which we call EPOP, which is perfect because you guys are POP. We're EPOP. So there we go. Blending it all together. Our goal is to help people travel more while spending less. You know, take these longer term, authentic, on the ground, independent, like you call it, travel experiences. What are some of your best tips going back to your backpacking days and even now for traveling more and spending less?
2: Sure. I mean, I used to have a ton of them. You know, if I think of three of them, I I would say the first one is, although it's better nowadays, but I I would always tell people not to rely on the guidebooks. Because if you think about a guidebook, you know, used to require at least a year of somebody traveling to have those experiences, then probably another six to eight months to write about it, and then another, you know, six to eight months to publish it, and then it's out for a year. And so by the time that you've read about this place, that's the coolest or hottest spot in some location that no one knows about, you're talking about three years out. So now, um, because most of, uh, you know, most of the kind of online guides are, you know, at least via the Internet, and so it's a little bit more up to date, um, it's relevant. But I always encourage people, if you want to find the best kind of gems, just rely on the word of advice from travelers and locals. So I'm constantly, as a traveler, asking people for word of mouth recommendations and people who have just been there. Uh, That's one thing. I think a second thing is just understand that outside of the United States, almost everything is negotiable. Everything. (laughs) Right. Um, And so, you know, amazingly
0: so, right? Not like, oh, you're going to get 10% off. No, you're going to get like 95% off at some prices. right,
2: Right. And if you're an outsider, chances are you're getting charged double or triple whatever the local price is. And so, you know, the easiest threshold is just your willingness to walk away. And so, if somebody asks for a certain price, maybe you offer a third. And then, you know, just see how low they'll go until you walk away. And whatever they say, and the last time you walk away, that's the lowest price. And that's probably the local price as well. Uh, that's, that's my second piece of advice. And then the third thing might be a little bit strange, but depending on where you are, sometimes your nationality can make you a target, uh, especially if you're an American uh, in certain parts of the world. And so I always tell people to just say that they're Canadian because everybody loves the Canadians.
0: <laughs> I've heard that a lot. You see people with Canadian flags on their bags, too. I just just pretend I don't know anything that's going on most of the time. We, we usually ask guests about their, their biggest travel mishap. We've got only like a minute or two left here. Do you have a travel mishap that you've made that you can tell us quickly? Uh, something that, you know, you've been traveling, it sticks out in your mind, I can't believe this happened, but it all worked out in the end.
2: Oh yeah, I had a gun pulled on me in Guatemala, unfortunately. Uh, one of those terrible kind of rainy nights and went down a dark you know, kind of alley looking for a hostel that was closed and I was by myself and you know, a kind of taxi driver, or at least he claimed he was, offered to give me a ride. And when he took me to his car, it wasn't a taxi at all. And I said no. And then he reached into his glove compartment as I was walking away and pulled out a handgun. And I had to make a run for it. It was it, it was kind of crazy. But um, if you pick up my book, The Promise of a Pencil, you can read the full story. Unfortunately, I, you know, walked away unscathed, but a little bit A little bit shaken. Awesome. uh, But, you know, it makes you stronger.
0: Yeah, we'll leave that as a cliffhanger then for people. What do you have, Adam, in the pipeline that people should be looking out for, either personally or professionally, with Pencils of Promise?
2: Um, I mean, we're we're excited to keep building more schools, but more importantly, uh, I think what you're going to see out of the organization is while we're known as a school building organization, we're really focused on the future being seen as an innovative learning organization, and so looking to to uh, trying to figure out what the future of an education can look like in a classroom, and using a lot of cool tools and technologies to get there. So uh, if you just you know stay tuned, pencils promise dot org, and you can follow all my stuff either my website's annabron or You know, I'm accessible on Twitter and Instagram and everything else. You know, we're we're excited to have you guys uh, join us for the journey.
0: Yeah. And guys, don't forget, uh, you can pick up the book too. That's If you Google Adam Braun or if you go to any of the sites he mentioned, you'll be able to find the book there. Awesome stuff in there. You can find out all the nitty gritty details of the gun pulling incident then. (laughs) Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show and thank you for providing such a great example for our generation since we're both the same age. I think you're like seven months younger than me to, to follow. I really, really appreciate it personally. And I know a lot of people around the world are picking up the book and just saying, hey, here's a young guy who's doing it. So thank you for that.
2: Oh, My pleasure. Thank you guys for all you do.
0: And guys, thank you everyone for tuning in today. Thanks for the support. Remember, if you want to hear more from Adam, you can flip on over to the Zero to Travel podcast. Jason's going to be interviewing him. You can get all that at Zero to Travel. Of course, you can find it on iTunes too. So thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks for the support. And thank you for making us the number one rated travel podcast on iTunes. We appreciate it. And until next time, happy free travel.
1: I'll show you-